The Bible says that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That's why Augustine said famously in the fourth century of the Lord, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Restlessness is a universal trait of the human heart. God has put eternity in our hearts and we have an inconsolable longing. We try to satisfy that longing with vacations and accomplishments and stunning cinematic productions and sex and sports extravaganzas and drugs and drink and work and family and on the list goes. But the restlessness is still there. Isaiah put it like this. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Give ear and come to me. Hear me that your soul may live. And Jeremiah said it like this. My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Many of you, many of us here this morning are like this. One preacher put it this way. Your soul is hungry. Your heart is thirsty. You feel an insatiable longing for something. You're restless. Almost everywhere you turn, the grass is greener than where you stand. And the great tragedy for some of you is that even though this is the Spirit of God beckoning you to Himself, you turn away again and again to short-run, temporary, backfiring pleasures of sensual movies, drugs or alcohol or tanning parlors or a new toy. And none of it satisfies. The thrill of lust leaves the sediment of guilt and loneliness. The drugs and alcohol can't keep you from waking up in the real world again and again with your messed up relationships. The tan looks so artificial and it fades so quickly. The new toy becomes so boring in just a few weeks. We drink at broken cisterns. And we eat bread which does not satisfy. And the words of C.S. Lewis ring more and more true. He said, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Ah, but money can fix anything, right? Even riches don't satisfy. A couple of years ago, I read this story to you that had just come out in the New York Times. I'm sure you all remember it from two years ago. For Mac Metcalf and his estranged second wife, Virginia Merida, sharing a $34 million lottery jackpot in 2000 meant escaping poverty at breakneck speed. Years of blue-collar struggle and ramshackle apartment life gave way almost overnight to limitless leisure, big houses, and lavish toys. Mr. Metcalf bought a Mount Vernon-like estate in southern Kentucky, stocking it with horses and vintage cars. Miss Merida bought a Mercedes-Benz with a modernistic mansion overlooking the Ohio River. But trouble came almost as fast. 
And though there have been many stories of lottery winners turning to drugs or alcohol and of lottery fortunes turning to dust, the tale of Metcalf and Merida stands out as a striking example of good luck, the kind most people only dream about, but good luck rapidly turning fatally bad. Mr. Metcalf's first wife sued him for $31,000 in unpaid child support. A former girlfriend wheedled $500,000 out of him while he was drunk. And alcoholism increasingly paralyzed him. Ms. Merida's boyfriend died of a drug overdose in her hilltop house. A brother began harassing her, she said, and neighbors came to believe her once welcoming home had turned into a drug den. Though they were divorced in 01, it was as if their lives as rich people had taken on an eerie symmetry. And so did their deaths. In 2003, just three years after cashing in his winning ticket, Metcalf died of complications relating to alcohol at the age of 45. Then on the day before Thanksgiving, Miss Merida's partly decomposed body was found in her bed. Authorities said they found no evidence of foul play. They're looking into the possibility of a drug overdose. She was 51. New circumstances that money can buy, friends, only bring new problems. And what we need is not new circumstances, but a new life. Simply changing what's going on outside of me does not change what's going on inside of me. We can run and change and move all we want. We can run, but we cannot hide. We don't need a change of address as much as we need a change of heart. Well, when all else fails, then start going to church. Get religious. That should do the trick. My godly mother, when preaching at one of her four boys about our ways, would often say, bless her heart, son, you need to get in church. And I've talked with many people over the years who, when they find out I'm a pastor, they might begin telling me their struggles, but they'll often add my mom's advice. I know I need to get in church, pastor. Now, I'm all for going to church, as you might expect. But understand this, following religious rules and going to church will fail just like the other things we've mentioned because they all have something in common. Namely, they deal with the outside, the external. External circumstances and external behavior when in fact the problem is internal. Going to church and obeying the rules does not get to the heart of the matter. Even religion like riches and sex and alcohol and work and all the rest is a matter that's embodied in the title of today's message that we have for you on the back of your program. It's a matter of looking for life in all the wrong places. And the Bible records a famous encounter between Jesus and an ultra-religious churchgoer who was nevertheless empty inside. And if ever there was a man born who had his act together, it was this guy. And yet, despite his resume, despite his piety and even his sincerity, Jesus told him, you need to be changed from the inside out. You need to be born again, as Jesus said it. So important was this issue that Jesus introduces it abruptly to this man, cutting through all of the small talk and all of the pleasantries and the formalities of their conversation. And he says in verse 3 of John chapter 3, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. 
And Jesus says this. He cuts right to this because, as we have as the first point in your outline, the new birth, being born again, is in fact our greatest need, despite what we think. It's our greatest need. And everyone, in fact, needs to be born again, including this man introduced in verse number one. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees, verse one says. And that verse continues where John left off at the end of chapter two. You remember that when the Bible was originally written, there were no chapters and verses. And so you would just have a flow. And so if you read chapter 3 and verse 1 in light of the last verse, verse 25 of chapter 2, verse 25 of chapter 2 tells us, now Jesus did not entrust himself to man because he knew, look at that last line, he knew what was in a man. Verse 1, now there was a man. It's connecting chapter 3 and verse 1 with the end of chapter 2. Jesus knew what was going on inside of people, what's going on inside of a man. And here's an example of a man. Now, there was a man, and not just any man, a man of the Pharisees, verse 1, named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. So who is this guy, Nicodemus? Well, he was a religious nut, number one. We might call him a Bible thumper in our day. A guy who took his religion seriously. He was a man of the Pharisees, the Bible tells us. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who weighed out their religious commitments to the very last ounce. They had more red tape than you could measure. Some regulations of theirs defined other regulations of theirs. And their religious system seemed destined for failure. No matter how much you did, there was something you forgot to do or more you should have done. This created a monotony that quenched any excitement. It dashed any hope for the regular guy, the common man, who couldn't even remember all the regulations, let alone keep them. The group to which Nicodemus belonged, the Pharisees, they were good folks in many ways, but they were specialists in misusing the law that God gave in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. They interpreted God's law as a set of complicated rules rather than as a means to experience God's grace. They said that the way you meet God is through what you do and you must earn God's approval. This was their great error. In order to achieve this purpose, they frequently went to extremes. Here's a for instance. The law said you're not to work, to do work like plowing on the Sabbath day, Saturday for them. So they would not allow spitting on the Sabbath. Now, why? Because when the saliva hit the ground, it might move the dust. That could be considered plowing. And so that's why Jesus said of this group, they tie up heavy loads and they put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. They love to strap religion on people's backs and watch them squirm. But apparently Nicodemus had begun to see the emptiness of the system. And so he approached Jesus at night, verse 2 tells us. Approached him at night possibly because he did not want to be seen conversing with the man that he was supposed to hate. And Jesus often embarrassed the pious Pharisees by bypassing their nonsense, getting down to the issues of the heart. And Nicodemus came to Jesus to ask some important questions that just might help him get the load of religion off his back. This is the guy who comes. 
Nicodemus had rules, but he did not have reality. Though he was admired as good, Nicodemus did not have God. No matter how pious he was on the outside, he was rotting on the inside. In fact, though he didn't know it yet, his religion was more of a hindrance to him than a help. Nicodemus needed to be born again, despite then his sincerity and his zeal. So much for the argument that you have heard, and maybe you've said, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere. This guy was sincere, but he needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity. And he needed to be born again as well, despite his religious position. Because verse 1 tells us he was not just a Pharisee, but notice, a member of the Jewish ruling council. That council was called the Sanhedrin. A very limited group of the most notable religious leaders of the day. These men governed the affairs of the nation of Israel. In order to be part of the Sanhedrin, you had to be a man of remarkable talents, remarkable influence, a man respected and followed by many individuals within that society. Here was a man who had achieved religious position, a religious man among religious men. But he needed to be born again. He not only needed to be born again in spite of his religious sincerity, in spite of his religious position, he needed to be born again despite his religious knowledge. Notice verse 10 of chapter 3. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? In the language in which this was written in Greek, it says literally, you are the teacher of Israel. Not only was he a Pharisee, not only was he a member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, he was the teacher in Israel. He had an official teaching position. And he was looked at with respect as the chief religious instructor in the nation. He's a man who was a scholar. He knew the scriptures inside and out. He's a man who had all the answers. And he's still a man who needed to be born again. So what are you trusting for your relationship with God? If you're trusting your religious sincerity, your zeal, you need to be born again. If you're trusting your religious position, maybe your heritage, maybe your church membership, your baptism, you need to be born again. If you're trusting even your knowledge of the Word of God, you need to be born again. Everyone needs to be born again. And in verse 3, Jesus says straight up that this applies to everyone. I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. The only way to God is to be born again. The new birth is man's greatest need. And notice that this new birth in verses 4 through 8 is accomplished not by us, but by God. In just a few weeks, we're going to celebrate New Year's. Many of us are going to make resolutions of all sorts. Do you remember the resolutions you made last January? Exactly. But you'll do it again, as will I. We're going to lose some weight. We're going to start exercising. We're going to get our finances together. We're going to start attending community groups on Sunday nights or community institute on Wednesday nights. We're going to start reading the Bible, and on it goes. 
We've all experienced the utter failure of keeping our own promises. It would seem that self-help is overrated, but it sells a lot of books. We have trouble keeping our earthly commitments. How are we supposed to keep spiritual commitments? And further, in the spiritual arena, hear this, our attempts to turn over a new leaf and pull ourselves up by our bootstraps is nothing more than rebellion against God. It says, I do not need God. I can do it myself. But Jesus teaches here that true change from the inside is humanly impossible. Nicodemus, for all his intelligence and his knowledge, can't grasp what Jesus means when he says you must be born again. And so he starts focusing on obstetrics. Notice what he says, verse 4. Well, how can a man be born when he's old? Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. He doesn't understand at this point, but knows that whatever Jesus means by born again, it's something he can't do. And in fact, that's the case. We cannot make ourselves spiritually alive because the Bible teaches. You are, or if you've come to Christ and been born again, you were dead in your sins. A dead man can do absolutely nothing to help himself. It's humanly impossible for us to muster up the strength to create spiritual life within us because we're dead in sin. Then how is the new birth accomplished? Well, it's accomplished, verses 5 through 8, by the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God reproduces. He gives birth to spiritual children and he reproduces in kind. Notice verses 5 and 6. I tell you the truth, Jesus says, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. It's not humanly possible for us to create spiritual life because flesh can only give birth to flesh. Human attempts cannot accomplish spiritual life. In fact, we see this just a few pages back in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1 and verse 13. Look with me. John 1.13. We're told that we can become children of God, but notice, verse 13. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The Spirit of God must do it. And when He does it, He reproduces in kind. Flesh gives birth to flesh. The Spirit gives birth to spirit. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual life. Now, I don't want to get bogged down too much, but I feel I have to say something about the reference to water here. Because, incredibly, some have tried to see baptism here, and then they tie being baptized to being born again. So let me just say a few things about that, okay? Baptism is not mentioned in John chapter 3, period. Look for it, it's not there. Every reference to water in the Bible is not baptism. Baptism is not mentioned in John chapter 3. Further, If this new birth were dependent on anything you do, like baptism, then it would mean you could control it and you could determine when it happens. But the Bible is clear, you don't control it. Notice verse 8. Jesus says, 
The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That's why the Bible tells us he saved us, Titus chapter 3, not on the basis of deeds we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. That is the washing, the water, the purifying of the new birth, being born again. And renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Ephesians chapter 2, I quoted verse 1. It goes on to say, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive, gave us spiritual life. For by grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So if it were baptism, it would mean you could control it. And it would be by your work. And both of those are ruled out by Scripture. But notice, there's a passage in the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the part that Nicodemus was supposed to be an expert in. That tells us water and cleansing are symbolic of the work of the Spirit. Ezekiel chapter 36 in your Bible says this. I, God, will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. Jesus' illustration of the wind is particularly poignant in this context because the Greek word that's translated wind and spirit are exactly the same word. Did you know that? Pneuma, wind, breath, spirit. So when he refers to the physical wind blowing, he's using the same word as spirit. And I can't help but imagine the two of them standing there and a gust of wind comes rushing by. And I imagine they felt it in their hair and they felt the robes flapping. And Jesus said, let me illustrate this truth from the wind. You hear it. You see its effect, but you don't know where it came from or where it's going. And this is the way the spirit works in everyone who's born again. He's saying that the work of the spirit is neither understood nor controlled. The best we can do is describe the work of the Spirit of God with terms and definitions of being saved and justified and becoming a believer. But I don't know how that happens. I know that the Spirit of God does a work and the old passes away and all things become new. I don't understand how the Spirit works, but I know that He does. Just like the wind blows wherever it pleases and it can't be controlled, the indescribable work of the Spirit of God in creating new life in the souls of men is not due to our control. It is, like the wind, an act of God, as they say in the insurance industry. He does as He pleases. That's why we have a hymn that many of you are familiar with that says, I know not how the Spirit moves, convincing men of sin." Revealing Jesus through the word, creating faith in him. But I know whom I have believed and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. His work is neither understood nor controlled, but it is obviously effectual. Effectual. 
It's an 80 cent term that means that it accomplishes what he intended to do. The work of the spirit, when he does it, becomes obvious. There's no mistaking it. Jesus says, you hear the sound of the wind. There was an effect that was obvious. When the wind blows, it makes things happen. Trees and bushes shake. Your hair blows. Damage may be done. But there's an obvious effect. And that's the illustration that Jesus is using. You don't command or control the wind, but you see its effects. You hear it. And when it's done, its work is obvious. The same is true with the work of the Spirit of God. That has significance, friends, for every one of us in this room. It's important for those who have never committed their lives to Jesus Christ. You do not, hear this, friend, do not presume upon God's grace and mercy. Don't say, I know that I need to enter a right relationship with God, but I'll do it when I'm ready. The work of God is not at your control. Contrary to what most of us think. He is not our puppy to come at our beck and call. Today, as you hear his word and you see your need, you respond to him and you throw yourself upon his mercy and grace. And we will at the end, as we do virtually every week, give you opportunity to do so. It's also important for the majority of us here who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And here's why. Because there's an effect that takes place when God gives you new life. Do not presume that all is right between you and God if there has been no change in your life. When one is born again, when the Spirit imparts new life, there is change. It may be, it most often is, slowly at first, but there is change. The old has gone, the new has come. New values, new priorities, new alignments. Since this is the work of God, the good news is, now hear the good news, there is no one then that's beyond his ability to save. It doesn't matter what your background may be. It doesn't matter what you may have done or what has been done to you. God can and still does. Thanks be to God. Say. The new birth is our greatest need. The new birth is accomplished only by God. And thirdly, the new birth is received by faith in Jesus Christ. Nicodemus had spent his life building a system of salvation based upon works. And now as Jesus spoke, he saw his whole life crumbling into meaninglessness. Jesus says that spiritual life does not come by what you do, but it comes as the gift of God applied through the spirit. And Nicodemus asks in verse nine, well, how can it be? And in the exchange that takes place, here's what Jesus tells them. Salvation is by faith. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus would be lifted up, speaking of his death, that everyone who believes, that's the word for faith in your New Testament, everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. The new birth is received by faith in Jesus Christ, but what does faith in Christ mean? It means a few things that I have listed for you at the bottom of your outline. First, it involves understanding Jesus' word, the truth, the gospel. Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can this be? Beginning in verse 10, you are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, 
And do you not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? In verse 10, Jesus chides Nicodemus, you're the teacher of Israel. You should have known. And why should he have known? Because as a teacher of Israel, he thoroughly knew the scriptures. Jesus was saying, you should have understood the necessity of a transformation by the spirit, not through your works in order to enter the kingdom. I can't teach you new heavenly truth because you haven't understood the earthly things. Friends, hear this. New life does not come when we get in touch with our feelings. It does not come when we sift through our opinions. It does not come when we have the right philosophy. The Bible says this. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. So faith means understanding Jesus' word. It also means, secondly, recognizing Jesus' authority. Look at verse 13. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. As you read through this account of this dialogue, it seems like a break in the flow of thought, but it's really quite connected. Jesus is saying, I'm the one who has the authority to tell you this. One of the great teachings of the Word of God is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And the term Lord was a common title of respect in those days, but it was more than that. It described ownership. In certain contexts, it described a deity, one who is God. Jesus is Lord and Master because He owns the universe that He created, and He's our God. That's why John began this book by saying, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then he says, and this Word, this One who is God, became flesh and made His dwelling among us. That's what Jesus is saying here. No one has ever come from God. No one else has ever come from heaven, but I have. I am Lord. I have authority. Believe my word because I am your God. Faith in Christ begins with understanding his word. It requires that we recognize his authority. And finally, it involves us trusting in Jesus' sacrifice. Look at verse 14. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Do you all remember that story of Moses lifting up a snake in the desert? In the Old Testament, as the nation of Israel was being led by God toward their promised land, they rebelled against God a number of times. God had to judge them on those occasions. And one time God brought them into an area where venomous snakes invaded the camp. And people began to die by the thousands as a result of these snake bites. And they asked God to rescue them and he graciously gave them a way to escape. God tells them, do this, erect a pole in the middle of the camp with a bronze snake on top of it. By the way, have you ever seen the symbol for Blue Cross and Blue Shield? That's what that is. And God says to them, everyone who would look at it would recover and be saved from the deadly effects of the poisonous bites. It was an act of belief, an act of faith for them to go and look and trust what God had promised. Jesus focused their attention upon a repugnant symbol. They might have thought in the Old Testament as God gave them this command, you know, we've got enough snakes in our camp. Why do we have to look at other ones? 
But all one had to do was go and look and he would live. And Jesus was predicting that he would be lifted up on a wooden cross. A repugnant act that would become the source of salvation. And just as they looked in faith, so we respond in faith to Jesus Christ. So faith in Christ means understanding his word. It means recognizing his authority. It means trusting his sacrifice. He died taking the penalty of our sin. And we must trust that sacrifice rather than our own good deeds. Verse 15 teaches us finally. That the kind of faith, that kind of faith in Christ, grants eternal life as a present possession. The purpose for which he died is given in verse 15, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Believe. Hear his word. Recognize his authority. Trust his sacrifice. And you will have life. Do you know that many people believe that eternal life is something you get maybe after you die? But the Bible teaches that when you believe, at that moment, eternal life becomes a present possession. And it lasts forever. You got it now. It lasts forever. It means nothing you will do in the future. Nothing that can be done to you will remove that. It's a present possession that lasts forever. It begins at the moment we trust Christ. And you, you can have eternal life today. Friends, spiritual life leads to real life. And that's why Jesus said this. We'll see it in John chapter 10 when we get there in three years. He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And apparently Nicodemus later got it because near the end of this book, we read of this guy, Nicodemus, again. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus. The man who earlier had visited Jesus at night, Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices in strips of linen. You can get what apparently Nicodemus got by responding to the overture of the Holy Spirit in your heart now. Now, how do I do that? That's what it says. You realize that you're a sinner. As I tell you every week, you recognize that Jesus paid the penalty. You say, Lord, I'm owned by you. You're the master, so I'm going to go your way, not my way. That's what repent means. And you receive Jesus Christ into your life. You pray to him. You ask him from your heart to God as the spirit moves on your heart in this moment to draw you to himself. You respond by asking him to save you. Let's bow together. Father, we thank you for this sacred time to come together as your people, to open the pages of your book, and particularly to look at this famous dialogue between the Lord of glory and this religious man, Nicodemus. Thank you for preserving it for us these now nearly 2,000 years. We thank you, Lord, that it cuts literally to the heart of the matter, that it 
sweeps away all of our pretense with regard to our goodness and our ability to recommend ourselves to a holy God. And it shows us the reason for which Jesus came because we can't do it ourselves. Thank you, Lord, that your Holy Spirit moved upon my heart at a point in time. And you caused me to look at the cross in belief. And you changed me beginning from the inside and working itself out. I thank you that you've done that in the lives of so many others that are present here. And so in this moment, Lord, we thank you for the gospel message and the Lord of that message. And I pray, Lord, that there may be people here right now on whom your spirit is moving. That you are drawing them to yourself so that even though they may have heard the gospel message many times before, it meant little to them and now it means everything to them. They know that this one is is who they need. It's not something they need to do. It is one they need to trust. I pray, Lord, that you are saving people in this moment. That they are receiving eternal life and that they too will know the joy of having life in the here and now more abundantly. Lord, we love you because you first loved us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.